Welcome to episode 215 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 30th of January 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Fanny. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Graham, Muse score four. Yeah, so uh, I haven't got any music to play, I'm afraid. But um, Muse score is a kind of famous piece of notation software, music notation. So music notation, the, the staffs and the notes. I can't actually read or write music, but it's an important part of uh, the music ecosystem for education and, of course, for people who compose music. And in the proprietary world, we do have LilyPond as an open source app. In the proprietary world, this is a very expensive and exclusive kind of club dominated by a piece of software called Sibelius. And Sibelius has always had the edge on MuseScore because, uh, I don't know, I'm going to make a generalization, but the aesthetes that write music, they want their scores to be beautifully rendered. And while MuseScore has got the job done in previous versions, it's never looked that pretty. The horizontal spacing's always been off. The rendering's not been very nice. And I know this because I sometimes import music into MuseScore and use it to convert scores to MIDI. So MuseScore 4 has a totally different UI rendering mechanism. It's got beautifully anti-aliased scores and notes and all of those bits that go around the music. Much better alignment, much better horizontal spacing, a whole new set of icons. So it looks great. It has VST support. It's got a new mixer. The UI is basically being overhauled. And it's a great app. I do need to make the caveat that this is... This, the people behind MuseScore are the same people that own Audacity, and we know what happened when they initially took over the project and wanted to insert telemetry. And I think this is a discovery because I'm glad at how little they've changed MuseScore with a project that they have more control over. But there is still a kind of portal to their online subscription model for getting scores, although the majority of them are free. There's also a new music engine, and there's a free proprietary kind of instrument download, which is this huge orchestral sample library. It it supports sound fonts by default, which is like an old-fashioned sample, which sounds a bit like, you know, SNES music from 1993. (laughs) It's free download, free to use. There's no limitations on it, but it's not open source. But the, the new audio system and this huge orchestral library sounds amazing. And this is something that composers really use to, like, work their scores as, as a decent sample library of sounds. And it sounds fantastic. And and it is a great open source project. It's brilliant. But you don't know your crotchet from your quaver from your semi-brief. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> and I know um, my daughter does music GCSE, and it's a huge help for her because the software is just so exclusive otherwise. And, they, and a part of this is music theory. I don't understand it, but it must help a, a huge number of people get into it. And it's, they still get that kind of expectation that people who are serious about music need to be able to read and write music. So the fact that MuseScore exists is a good thing. Would you say that people who can read music are very racist because <laughs> it says they've got a new system for slurs and ties? I don't know what those things are, but it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> that is funny. But I mean, no, I think I know those those are the bits that go above and below the notes and they weren't, they never used to be particularly aligned with the notes themselves. Ah, okay. That's as much as I know, honestly. I installed it through Arch, I'm sorry to say. And <laughs> the Arch packaging being AUR and completely open source actually cuts out all a lot of the kind of buy-in that you might see if you download the binaries from MuseScore site. So I really didn't have any kind of conflict of, of their open source and their non-open source parts at all. 
which is a huge credit to them, I think. Will, Node-RED Home Assistant Contrib, what's this? Well, I think I talked about this a few weeks back, that I've started actually trying Home Assistant properly now. I, I tried it a while back and found it to be impenetrable. It was very complicated, seemingly unnecessarily so, and um, pretty much gave up with it. Well, I persevered now on Graham's advice that it was worth sticking with. And I've managed to set up a lot of devices and got a hang of creating sensors and using the templating system in Home Assistant, which is really powerful and allows you to like munge together data from lots of other places into something that you can like use. For example, you can take an average of all of the temperatures and just output an average temperature for that you can then use in dashboards and things like that. But all of this requires writing a lot of YAML in config files. One of the things that I have not really touched in in Home Assistant at all is the automation side of things. You can set conditions which, when met, call triggers and then cause actions to happen. And this is all done through the YAML interface in Home Assistant and is, in my opinion, quite difficult to really get your head around and, and make a lot of sense out of. Whereas Node-RED, on the other hand, makes this sort of thing extremely easy, not only with the um, joining the blocks together UI aspect of it, but the fact that you can just get in there and write code, albeit JavaScript, and change the way that things work. Very, very straightforward. And so on the one hand, you've got Home Assistant, which talks to all of your devices very easily and exposes all the data. And on the other hand, it's very complicated to join those things together. And you've got Node-RED sat there, which is really good at joining these things together and and making stuff happen. So Node-RED Home Assistant Contrib, specifically Node-RED Contrib Home Assistant WebSocket, which is the new version. There's an old version without the WebSocket bit on the end, and that is years out of date now. So make sure you use the WebSocket version. This allows you to expose all of the devices that Home Assistant has discovered on your network or you've configured on your network and expose those through a very straightforward entity or or device sort of interface into Node-RED, which you can then query, you can set, you can join bits and pieces together. You know, if this, then that style, drag and drop logical flows, you can do all of that in Node-RED and remove all of the requirements to know how to use the templating system and how to use automations in Home Assistant, which I think is overly complicated. So a combination of Home Assistant to find the devices and Node-RED to join them all together seems to be the sweet spot for me. Um, it's, it's really made quite a difference to the amount of stuff that I can do with it. And this uh, this extension to Node-RED has made it all the much easier. So highly recommend it. That's a really great idea. Well, I haven't done any of the logic in Node-RED, but I also, you've just reminded me, I, um, I've i got a Garmin smartwatch and I want to be able to turn off our bedroom lamp because we don't have any phones or anything up there. And the Garmin smartwatch can send a call to a REST API. Now, Home Assistant hasn't got any, it's really hard to get to the REST API in Home Assistant and I wouldn't want to try to, but I've solved the problem with exactly this component in Node-RED because Node-RED is just so brilliant at creating kind of an endpoint. And then you can link that to one of these components. It just took three elements. It was just really good. I completely you know, agree with you. It's a really important addition if you're going to use Home Assistant. Hang on, did you just say that 
you don't take your phone to bed. So what do you do for the first sort of 20 minutes, half an hour when you wake up? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Um, I just get up and go and get a coffee. So you wake up and then get out of bed yeah. immediately. I can't hang around in bed. I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> I also don't understand. I, the last thing I want is to be turned the lights off. I switch. I got an extension cord for €6.50 from uh, B&Q. <laughs> Job done. There you go. <laughs> so, Graeme, you've posted in our Telegram chat the flow graph of this and it is very nice to be quite honest and I could steal this for doing my IVR stuff in my asterisk interface thing it reminds me of configuring Jack with one of the graphical tools mm. yeah it's just I mean what they what it's showing is I guess that there are three nodes there's an incoming node which is just get in node red and you just create an endpoint that you can call from my watch or whatever it happens to be and then that's linked to the the lamp device and then 200, which is the OK HTTP signal that you send as well, so that it knows that the signal's been sent. Is it a Forerunner Garmin that you've got? It's a Phoenix 5. It's quite old, but it's a great watch. Uh, I must never show this to my son, who has a Garmin watch that he got from my brother as a hand-me-down. And if he knows that he can turn lights off and on with his watch. <laughs> <laughs> OK, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. All right, Phelan, it sounds like you've been playing with Firefox, but I'm not touching this with a barge pole in terms of naming. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say there's an awful lot of terrible words in this thing. It's uh, So let's go to the start where I was getting a thing. It was a birthday present from the UK and DHL were delivering it. Do you mean DHL? I, I mean DHL, yes. I don't mean that other one that you just said because that's ridiculous. Oh, it's ridiculous to say H, is it? Oh, stop trying to trick me. You're trying to trick me with letters. <laughs> I don't know which is right. Um, so I knew I was going to have to pay VAT. That's fine. Coming from some Stone Age country outside the EU, in came the package, and then I got an email from DHL, and I thought, oh, look at this email. That looks remarkably similar to all those fake emails I <laughs> continually get that tell me to pay a package. I'm like... I know it's probably the one, it's too specific, I know it's roughly the right price, but what if it was one of those hacks where they're sitting on top of a international domain, you know, that it's a lowercase Greek T that happens to look like an L or God knows what. So I thought, surely there's a way to see if something is outside of the ASCII range. And I dug around and eventually I found in the settings in about config on Firefox, you can set the IDN show puny code to true. What that does is if it's a international domain, I actually had to go and look for one because it turned out the email was fine and I paid my VAT and it's all good. But 
I found a lot of articles telling me about the thing, but not just giving me an example domain. But if you do, what it does is you get a the letters XN and dash dash or like two minus signs beside each other. And then what looks like a very bizarre code because I, I looked at one that was an example of a Chinese like domain. I don't know what it pointed to, but they converted it into the puny code. And then, you know, you're looking at it going, yeah, that is not apple.com or dhl.com or anything that they're trying to fake. You can see that it's obviously gibberish. Now, there is a link to a Firefox plugin that I did not install because I thought, mm, it's not, it's one of those kind of, you know, community ones that I wasn't sure how, how legit it was. And it's no homographs is the name of the plugin with a terrible URL, but I'm not going to say it. You can look at it in the links for the show. Just happens to be the look of the draw. But yeah, this claims to make it easier. It splits out the domain and it does essentially what I have done, but tries to make a nice interface to it. I am not so sure if you need that. I think if you see the XN dash dash, you'll realize that you've got something, you know, if you were looking to go to your bank and then you saw something like that, you would go, okay, that's clearly not my bank. And for people who are on the other side of things and on Chromium, there's a link to a GitHub page for that too. I don't know if it's inside a store or not. It looks quite old, but maybe there's more up-to-date things. And that one's called Fish Protect and it's from fish.ai. And if you use Chromium, I hope all the AI misery comes to you. There's me thinking that you were going to give me a point from the predictions no nope. you're gonna use this one <laughs> Did, i don't even have chromium installed it can just go and f off well you don't have chrome installed for that odd time that you need it i have a thing that uses the chrome engine which is falcon which is a kde browser but i don't have chrome itself and you've got a bonus discovery awesome privacy yeah this is a absolutely brilliant list for people who often say oh yeah, what what do you use to do that if you don't use such and such and it's a proprietary app like the likes of Spotify or one of the ones that can listen and pick the music of what it's actually playing? This is a curated list that somebody has done of all the open source apps that you can get for phones or serve open source services that you can run them. And obviously it keeps growing as they make changes to it, but it's really, really good. It's some brilliant stuff on there. And anybody who's trying to eke their way out of the Google or Apple ecosystem. It's a very, very cool list. Yeah, and if you want to get away from the tyranny of Wikipedia, there's an alternative to that as well. There is. <laughs> Didn't check that out, actually. Oh, my God, Wikiless. Oh, fuck's sake. Yeah, this makes me think that maybe this might be curated by someone who takes privacy a little bit too seriously. Perhaps, but, you know, there's nothing like reflected glory from tinfoil, so... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> And Graham, you've got some more thoughts on tiling in KDE. I've been talking about tiling scripts for KDE recently, and a few people on our Telegram group suggested I retry Bismuth. I did try it, um, I don't know, a year or two ago. And I wanted to give a little bit of feedback because I used the KWIN tiling scripts, which are, are no longer being developed. And Bismuth just can't. In particular, I use a half layout because I have an ultra-wide display, and this allows me to have a column split into two or more, and I couldn't do that. And there's no blade layout, which lets me do three or four or five columns, as many as I need. But also I found when I clicked and dragged windows, they would pop out of the tiling. There was a bit of a problem with bismuth. It couldn't track them. And then I couldn't pop in windows from being untiled to tiled again, the floating toggle, that is. And I couldn't 
lock to the destination areas of the this display in the same way that I could with K-Win tiling. So I'm still stuck with K-Win tiling for now until, I don't know, I'll try the next tiling script that comes along because um, it sounds like the next version of KD might have it. Yeah, maybe we won't need any of these hokey third-party ones. I've got three distro releases to talk about. The first one is Blend OS from Rudra, who does, uh, he's that young guy who does Ubuntu Unity Remix and like a bunch of other stuff. And this is a very ambitious distro. It is uh, yet another immutable file system one, but it blends together, Blend OS, see what it did there, using DistroBox, loads of different distros. So you can have Arch, Ubuntu, and Fedora all on the same system. And you can use those package managers just side by side. It sounds very ambitious to me, but it wouldn't boot for me. (laughs) I am surprised. I mean, I'm sure I did something wrong. I tried it in a VM, it didn't work. I tried it on bare metal and it didn't work. It may be to do with my BIOS settings, I don't know, because it only seemed to support EFI boot. And I did try that as well as Legacy. But uh, anyway, it sounds very interesting and one to check out. I don't think it is necessarily daily drivable just yet, but uh, I don't know, give it a go. And uh, two ends of the same spectrum, let's say. The first one, Hello System. This is... A FreeBSD-based distro that oh. <laughs> just you wait, fail him. It aims to look like macOS. Oh, good! Combine both of them together. <laughs> yeah. Now, what you end up with is FreeBSD with a graphical interface that looks like macOS or more like OS X from several years ago. It seems to me cool. Well, look, not everyone has got an irrational hatred of all things non-GPL like you. So if you want to learn a bit about FreeBSD and you want to start with a nice GUI, I've traditionally recommended GhostBSD, which is Mate-based and excellent. If Mate isn't for you for whatever reason, then Hello System is a perfectly reasonable alternative to me. Now, okay, get ready to uh, laugh heartily, Phelim. I will, don't you worry. I connected to my wireless network and it worked. That is the first joke. <laughs> the punchline is that... You re- didn't realize that the cable was plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. The punchline is that instead of my usual, I don't know, about 200 megabit that I get from wireless here in the studio, I got about three. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think the driver is uh, perfectly tuned, shall we say. So FreeBSD strikes. But anyway, it seems to me like it's a great distro to check out FreeBSD if you are curious about it and are not a cynical fucking bastard like Faden. <laughs> it's good to keep those 10 developers out of harm. At least we can see what they're up to, you know. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Well, on the other end of the slightly Mac OS-y type thing spectrum is Elementary OS. And Elementary OS 7 has been released as you're listening to this, but not as we are recording it. I happen to have the inside information from Danny, who is my friend, and I'm on the press list. And so this has come out now, I think, hopefully. (laughs) I'll have to cut it if not. But anyway, it's a very good release if you're into that sort of thing. And what's really interesting about it to me is that there is no sense that it is based on Ubuntu 2204. You know, they don't hide it, but at the same time, it's all about Flatpak. 
as your applications. And, you know, they've got their own app center, which is very much curated and trying to get people to pay for applications and stuff. But you can sideload, as they call it, things like FlatHub. But there's not really a sense of download stuff from the Ubuntu archives. I mean, you can, you can just open a terminal and do it. But via the GUI, I don't think there was a way to do it. I may be wrong about that. But uh, it's just, it's all about flat packs, basically. And uh, I learned that the config files for Firefox, if you use the Flatpak, are in your home directory dot var slash something, which seemed very odd to me. Ooh, okay. Yeah, I'd never used the Flatpak of Firefox before, but I got my profile all sorted and everything. And it's it's a fine OS. The the I mean, I hate to do this, but the the default wallpaper is just breathtakingly beautiful i don't want to like be one of those people who <laughs> reviews distros by talking about the wallpaper but it is like really stunning it almost tempts me to change my black background but i'm not going to obviously <laughs> but yeah definitely give this a go if this is your sort of thing i mean it's not really for me i'm just too much of a diehard xfce fan but it is a distro that is really opinionated on virtually every way that you should use it. But because it's Linux and open, you can have flexibility, but just try it and see if it suits you is my advice. Do you feel there's gaps anywhere or do you feel like it's very consistent all the way through? I don't think there's gaps in the experience. I think there's gaps in the software availability out of the box because there's not that much in App Center. But those gaps can be filled with something like FlatHub, which is really easy to install. You just go to flathub.org, I think it is, pick whatever it is you want to install, download the file, that opens with App Center. It says, right, okay, you're about to install FlatHub and you're going to get the whole of FlatHub available to you and that's not curated by us and we can't guarantee this, that and the other. Are you sure you want to do this? And you just say yes and then it does it and then suddenly you've just got hundreds of applications that are in FlatHub. And of course, you can always open a terminal and just install something. So it can be whatever you want it to be, but out of the box it is somewhat, well, not somewhat, very opinionated. And whether you agree with those opinions or not is down to personal taste. And I personally don't agree with quite a lot of those opinions, but I respect it for what it is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. You know the old saying, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? The traditional approach to device security is that hammer a blunt instrument that can't solve nuanced problems. Even after installing clunky agents that uses hate, IT teams still have to deal with mountains of support tickets over the same old issues, and they have no way to address things like unencrypted SSH keys, OS updates, or pretty much anything that goes on with a Linux device. Collide is an endpoint security solution that's more like a Swiss Army knife. It gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, Mac, Windows, and even Linux. You can query your entire fleet to check for common compliance issues or write your own custom checks. Plus, instead of installing intrusive software that creates more work for IT, Collide's lightweight agent shows end users how to fix issues themselves. You can achieve endpoint compliance by adding a new tool to your toolbox. Visit collide.com slash late night Linux to find out how. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, 
Linux Downtime, and Linux After Dark. And you also get episodes early occasionally. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. Now, lots of people got in touch suggesting Graphene OS for my new Pixel 7, and I think some other custom ROMs as well. The whole point of it is that I don't want to try custom ROMs yet. I know what custom ROMs are like, and they have advantages and disadvantages. Oh, people also told me that, yeah, you can't move the time, you're stuck with that. And it's almost enough to make me go to a custom ROM, but not quite. I want to experience for as long as I can true stock Android, and the camera is just so good. It's just, I mean, I've posted in our Telegram group and... Yeah, it looks shite. Yeah, fuck off. And in a few (laughs) places as well, like the camera is so, especially at night, if you live at night like I do, then night sight is just... Flood fill for your pictures. Oh, fuck off. No, it's not. Whatever. Just because you've got a shit camera on yours. It is. It looks terrible. Yeah, it looks really bad, doesn't it, guys? Come on. It's pretty impressive. I think it was generated by AI. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care what you say. Uh, the camera's amazing. It's nice to have banking apps. All the shit that I said a couple of weeks ago. And I just, I'm not ready to go the custom ROM route yet. I'm sure I will eventually, but for now, please stop suggesting it. Oh, once, once you've tasted the poison fruit. I flashed the fucking Google apps anyway. All I wanted was regular updates, which I'm now getting anyway. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's why I don't do it, because I, I know it, it's just convenience, and that is the thing. Yeah. And I'm also very stubborn, so... <laughs> yes. But anyway, everyone, please stop suggesting Graphene OS to me. I'm very aware of what it can do. And, oh, it's got this great camera, and you can install that from the Play Store. So I did, and I did some A-B testing on it, and, uh, yeah, it's not very good compared to the proper Pixel camera, which is one of the best cameras in the fucking world, according to MKBHD's massive study that he did. It's not quite as good as the Pixel 6a, which is much cheaper, but anyway, it's an amazing camera, and fuck you, Phelan. (laughs) Zerdo got in touch about captures. They said, try Buster. It's a browser extension that works 60% of the time 100% if you have a voice recognition API key to give it. I've not completed a Google Capture in years. Who was it that was moaning? Oh, yeah, someone wrote in about the Capture stuff. So, yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes anyway. Buster, give that a go. I was on about 60% of the time, though. That seems quite frustrating. That sounds like that meme from uh, Anchorman. Yeah, that's what I thought it said as I was reading it. It works 60% of the time, 100% of the time. No, but (laughs) if you've got this voice recognition API key... I don't know where you get one of those from, but I'm sure it's all uh, at the link in the show notes. We had a couple of emails about Wondershaper. The first one was from Chris. Yes, um, I think I mentioned Wondershaper as one of my finds of the fortnight for limiting bandwidth on things. Chris says, Wondershaper has been around in OpenWRT for ages. There are two uses. One, QoS, quality of service, and two, avoid saturated big buffers to avoid latency. Use Wondershaper to set the bandwidth just lower than your ISP bandwidth so that buffers don't ever fill up. Huge difference. And Oscar said, You recently discussed Wondershaper in an episode, but it's generally regarded as old news and replaced by SQM. Codal-SQM, Controlled Delay, Smart Queue Management, aims to control latency even under a heavy load, sacrificing CPU resources and some bandwidth in the process. It's a part of the Buffer Bloat project. 
It's great and requires little tuning, mostly setting your upload speed. Set it to 85-95% to of your actual upload download speeds. Your router will work harder but your latency will stay low even when others are downloading large files, etc. As I've understood Codal SQM, it will look at your current networking streams and their respective sizes and prioritize the shorter queues by dropping the last few packages of the longer ones, making TCP slow down a bit for that stream. I also think Codal is enabled by default in some Linux distros, sysctl net.core.default underscore qdisk. Mine returns fq underscore Codal, an old Debian machine. And they provide a couple of links which we'll put in the podcast notes. I see we're all copy-pasting that now. <laughs> and yeah, FQ Codal for me. I think it's worth pointing out that Ubiquity use, or at least provide, Codal SQM on their routers as well by default now. So if you were to set up some sort of QoS profile on a Ubiquity router, it would be using that fair queue management thing. How much are they paying you, Will, yeah. to keep shilling for that? I'd all also this? like to know that. Not enough, <laughs> yeah. because I have got rid of my Ubiquiti Edge Router X because it wasn't fast enough, because I don't know if you've heard, but I've got gigabit symmetric <laughs> internet now. Oh, I hope it fucking go. goes on fire. <laughs> so I had to replace it, and I replaced it with a Microtik Hex series, which is a similar form factor, like very small sort of size of a cigarette packet size device with four gigabit throughput ethernet ports uh, very good and it's all built on linux and you get a shell so microtic good it's funny i have a custom router board from pc engines which is a swiss-based company and it could actually do a gigabit if i wanted to but i just don't have a gigabit connection and it makes me very sad that you do. <laughs> and you had to buy a new router, and I don't. But I still don't get a gigabit connection. The model I got was a Microtik Hex 5-port router, RB750GR3, and it cost me 65 quid, including VAT. I hate you, because mine cost me several hundred quid, <laughs> and I don't even get Wii replacement, because fucking Switzerland had to be outside the Wii sort of agreement, the bastards. <laughs> so, uh... Ah, I'm raging. Yeah, raging. Have you found the interface on that Microtik, I think it's pronounced, router, to be a bit um, old school, simple? Oh, yeah, very much so. That should suit you to enter the ground, Joe. Yeah, that's a good thing. (laughs) Good old CGI scripts. Well, I, th- I think you're right, Fanny, actually. I think if you've got an understanding of like the, the, the commands that happen under the hood, like what the, the sort of raw Linux commands are, then it perhaps makes a bit more sense. Because that's what I've heard about the Microtik gear is that it does work well and it's cheap, but it's not fancy in any way when you've actually got an interface with it. If you're used to interfacing with, I don't know, Cisco switches or Proker switches or something and routers, and you know the command line syntax, then their CLI is not a million miles away from that. If you have to use the web interface, it is a bit baffling, but they've got a couple of wizards in there that typically help you out most of the way i think the trade-off is worth it though it's been absolutely rock solid reliable and a plug if i may for linitx.com as a uk supplier who are very good at recommending the right router for the right price well if they want to pay us we'll put a link in the show notes but otherwise they can piss off (laughs) i think that might be my next router god i'm really annoyed by that damn it I can't believe you got me onto ubiquity nonsense gear and it's like shoddy firmware and now I'm going to follow you onto their dodgy router. Oh. Just buy TP-Link, it'll be aye, fun. Aye, aye, aye. 
course it will. It'll be brilliant. And you get to say, give me TP. Yeah, TP for my bunghole. My wife does genuinely giggle whenever TP Link is mentioned for that very reason. <laughs> right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what we'll be talking about. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.